0: What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever changing marketing and communications landscape.
1: Hello, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. This morning, I'm really excited to be speaking with the global head and executive director of engagement, diversity, and inclusion of Estelas, Eloisa Domingo. Welcome, Eloisa. Thank you so much. So I'm really looking forward to covering off on several different topics today, starting with your background.
0: My parents are immigrants from the Philippines, so they were both born and raised in the Philippines and uh, are both physicians um, and um, got married you know, at a young age. They're actually in a, an arranged marriage and then came to the United States in the 70s uh, to pursue their careers as, as physicians. So they left their families in the Philippines. So um, that's honestly, Erin, the basis of why I do what I do and who it is that I, I am. As the daughter of immigrants, um, I, I I am that, you know, kind of that quintessential uh, daughter that watched my parents come from you know kind of nothing. I mean, would they re- they they literally had five dollars in a radio, um, and for finishing their medical degrees at Indiana University, and um, you know and then grew to have. Uh, I think we had eleven cancer centers that we were running. My d- dad was running when he was when we were younger, and um, certainly the, the you know the American um, dream. And as we were growing up. So I remember my dad um, told me a lot about how people would make fun of his accent and how people wouldn't, couldn't understand him. And cases were taken away, you know, like patient cases were taken away from him because the doctors would say, well, you know, Dr. Domingo, people can't really understand you and, you know, this and this. And I just remember feeling at a, at a, at a young age, like, I don't, I don't get it. He's really smart. He's really good. He saves lives. He's a, he's a radiation oncologist, the oncologic surgeon. And I said, I I don't get it, you know, and even from a very young age, I I thought a lot about what is now kind of social justice and justice for people and what is right and what is, you know, kind of good, um, equitable, you know, kind of care and access. So so me being from a medical family, but also the daughter of immigrants, um, we talked about these things all the time. I mean, I, you know, um, I don't want to be you know, kind of that family that (laughs) sits around the watching TV and stuff and all of a sudden you're talking about, you know, immigrant rights. But I think just the nature of how I was raised and who my parents are and where they came from put me smack dab in the world that I am right now. And so for me doing this work um, at a young age was just me figuring it out about kind of what my calling was and what I felt comfortable doing. And so I'm lucky to be paid for what I do, but I just I just find that it's what I was always drawn to and what I was always kind of good at since I was young. Um, and that's kind of how I found myself in the middle of diversity and healthcare um, engagement, you know, as you know, and, and kind of this kind of greater realm of social justice.
1: Well, that makes total sense. And it's a much more logical uh, story than many have, particularly myself and how I got here. Uh, I do want to drill down on the, the fact that you have been doing this for a while, as, as far as I can tell, uh, doing my research back to 2001, when you were the Director of multicultural, mm-hmm. multicultural Affairs at Bucknell University. How different an environment was it then versus now? And, and obviously, there are some obvious changes that have been made. But I mean, you were in sort of raw territory. I don't think there were very many, if any, people that played that role back then, at least none that were know, very public where now it seems like it's a much more, um, forward facing position in a company.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. And, you know, 2001 for me was also a pretty critical year, um, 9-11 Nine Eleven happened that year, uh, Bucknell university, about 75% of the population, uh, there we were located, Bucknell is located in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, and many of the parents and faculty members and things like that were, uh, had kiddos that went to college at, at Bucknell or had partners or people like that who were part of the Bucknell community. So when that occurred, um, it was a big deal. You know, it it impacted now my role as the director of multicultural affairs. I also ran the multicultural center there was also a very um, big deal. But to your, to your note, Aaron, what happened between then and now this idea of, you know, 9-11 and terrorist attacks really kind of put the forefront of conversation around diversity um, at, at a table, um, at, a, at a kitchen table, at a counter, you know, where people were really actively talking about it um, and and what that means. Now, certainly, it was obviously, you know, kind of this shock and trauma. Um, but at the same time, I think it really opened up a lot of conversation about, you know, who who are we together? What is this unification of diversity, but also how diversity could potentially even drive us apart? Um, what is this idea of inclusion, you know, and how are we actually actively talking about it? Unfortunately, I think in the history of the United States, diversity has always been kind of introduced as this punitive thing, right? Or this kind of scary thing, people walking down the street and advocating and people getting mad, asking for rights and stuff like that. But I think what has changed is that as that conversation becomes more fluid and more proactive, then these discussions then become, certainly there's still the reactive part of, of these discussions, but then they become part of kind of the fabric of what it is, you know, today. Um, What I started in 2001 in my formal career in diversity, it was, it was really about, you know, as I, as I mentioned, kind of the fight, right. Advocating for things that people really didn't want to talk about. They saw it as kind of this, Oh my gosh, you know, here comes the diversity police, you know, kind of thing to now. It's a very active conversation. It is not seen as punitive. Um, it is uh, in, engaged and it's embraced and it's really a part of the business of a company, you know, these days. It's, it's, it's actually interesting because now it's kind of come full circle where it's like, if you don't have a diversity program, if you don't have a diversity person doing work, then it's almost like, well, what's wrong with you? You know, like what's wrong with your company? Why haven't you kind you know, kind of jumped on this, on this, um, quote, ba- bandwagon? So certainly in, in in a very short period of time, um, for a lot of different reasons, it has become, um, a forerunner in conversations.
1: Well, it's a good segue. And by the way, I meant to mention that it broke my heart a little bit when you were telling me that story about your dad. And so kudos for you for grabbing the bull by the, the horns and, you know, sort of yeah. helping fight back against that. So I'd be remiss if I didn't let you know that like, I shed a little tear when you were saying that, because that really is heartbreaking. That's, you know, your dad was only trying to do good, literally good. Right. And people were getting right. a lot of time for it. But Times are changing, and so I guess fast-forwarding to your current role, and as you're just teeing that up and companies really sort of having the, the must-do, you are the Global Head and Executive Director of Engagement, Diversity, and Inclusion at Estelis. Let's talk about what that role entel, entails at Estellus.
0: Yeah, so you know it's exciting because this is an inaugural role for Estella. So we are a Tokyo-owned company. So our DNA is Asian, um, specifically Japanese in nature. And I specifically say that because anytime that you have uh, kind of an organization, even though we're housed, one of our headquarters is here in Chicago, our DNA is truly that of a Japanese, you know, organization. So there's a lot of kind of um, this idea of honor and hierarchy. Uh, there's a term called NEMA washing, which is to say that there are many meetings before the actual meeting, you know, so there are um, many meetings around decision making our technicalities, because the decision was already made prior to, um, everybody kind of come in around the table and that is to save face that is to save honor. And a lot of people might see that as ineffective, but really in the field of diversity, what then allows that, what allows um, in in that kind of environment is, is an idea of talking openly, discussing things openly over a course of time and then kind of coming to a common decision where everybody has um, collaborated, you know, on this, um, one or two pieces of, of a decision. My scope um, is pretty large. I started here in November of 2018 with only diversity and inclusion underneath me. But then over the course of a year, I was given the global remit of employee engagement, um, culture at Astellis, uh, employer brand of choice, and then diversity and inclusion. So uh, it's a it's a large remit, but I think what it does is it shows to the company as well as our peers and those of our um, competitors, that the way that Estellus looks at diversity and inclusion is, is broad, you know, to be able to say that we look at our culture through the lens of diversity and inclusion and belonging and engagement, that we look at employer brand of choice. Um, the externally facing piece of our company, uh, and whether or not that builds loyalty and and talent acquisition draw, you know, to our to our company, uh, that's that's kind of a big deal. Many companies actually don't do that, um, so I'm pretty proud of Estela's for for allowing that, you know, to happen. Um, I also have a background in health equity uh, and health disparities, and so my work also broadly supports. Um, many of the things that we do around patient centricity, which is to say that we really understand and desire to understand the patient need uh, so that as we develop our products, that we ensure that the patients are really involved um, in our decisions.
1: Well, I love that. I love that Astellas has put teeth into the program and really empowered you to go beyond just paying lip service, not that you ever would or the company ever would, but I do feel like that is the risk that we run with this, feeling that it's a mandated position and that, you know, sometimes you can put someone in that position as a figurehead and not really give them the tools or the power to be able to make that change. So um, kudos to all of you for doing that.
0: Yeah.
1: I guess one of the questions I have is the good news is that you've got this inaugural position and, you know, you're senior within the organization. The probable sometimes downside of that is that, you know, it's hard to find role models because you are, I'm guessing, a little bit of a unicorn other than the people on your team. So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, at the company or outside the company, people that you look up to that give you guidance. I think you cited your parents probably as one set of role models, but maybe give us some others.
0: Yeah, no, that's, and I appreciate you saying this idea of, you know, of a, of a unicorn. Um, Although I, I, you know, I, I find that I there are different, you know, people who are, um, who are involved in, in, who it is that, you know, that I am one of the people that's been my long-term mentor and long time, co- you know, support and colleague, uh, his name is James page. So he was, uh, the former chief diversity officer at Johns Hopkins medicine, um, Vanderbilt, a variety of, of places. And he's guided me over the past seven to 10 years around my work around diversity. He was really the one who, who started me in thinking about, um, Diversity as a business case, which is, um, you know, the the piece that we'll be talking about a little bit later. Um, Prior to that, I really didn't quite frankly think about it like that. I thought about it as a piece of advocacy and human rights, which is still a very large part of my work. But to think about it as a metric driven and quantitatively driven field was his doing. You know, I'm also the mom. Uh, I'm also a mom and uh, I have two sets of twin boys. So I have 12 year old boys and six year old boys. They are biracial, um, you know, and I'm an executive. I'm a young mom, you know, and so I look a lot to women uh, who are pursuing their careers and also raising children, particularly kids of color uh, in the world that is, you know, kind of today. So there's a lot of women here at the company that helped me to understand um, that it's okay, you know, to say, gosh, my kid, my kid, sick. I got to go. Because to me, mom guilt is very real. um, And oftentimes you need women in the same positions to be able to say, you know what, you got to go. At the same time, you also need men, role models and mentors and coaches who are around you to say, yeah, I totally get it, you know, and, um, and, and good for you, you know, for standing up and, and, and doing what it is that, that you have to do. So um, I think that I, I see role models in a variety of different ways. One of my mentees, she is currently at Johns Hopkins, she's a role model. I mean, she's, she's just starting her career in diversity and health equity, but I see her as a role model for myself as well. I think oftentimes we look up to role models, but I've found that my mentees are also incredible role models to me because I remember the level of energy that they remind me of the energy that I had when I first started, um, the optimism, you know, the articulation of the work, the, the, the basis of theoretical foundation that really created in me what I wanted to change, you know, in this world, um, And there's still a glimmer of hope, you know, and a lot of my mentees, you know, because I've got 20 years, 20 plus years of experience, sometimes you get a little bit salty, you know, in this work. It's like, oh, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. You know, I've seen it happen. But when you work with your mentees who are so driven, um, you remember that there are, there's still a lot of hope, you know, out there and people who are looking to you to say, you know, I, I, yeah, I I can be salty, but you got to just kind of keep going because even if you don't change it today, you might be able to change it tomorrow. so I do think that there's a lot of people I look to for different parts of who it is that I am. Like I said, as a mom, a young executive, a woman, a person of color, um, and then really driving my career in a business kind of sort of sense.
1: Well, I like that answer. And I think it is, I, I had a chance to reflect recently on people that had inspired me and I look up to, and it really was a variety of different people for different reasons, right? Because you do sort of take a different part of that
0: is that for healthcare companies, if you don't do this right, you put patients' lives at risk. Um, If you don't, you know, kind of understand how culture um, plays into healthcare environments and healthcare and and race and language and all these other stuff plays into uh, the patients within a healthcare setting, the business of healthcare then goes under a a pretty massive risk. Um, So there's a lot of you know, reasons, as you, as you note here, why it makes sense, not just financially, but when it comes to the lives of your patients, why it makes sense to really get this right.
1: Well, thank you for sharing. This is the point where I do like to shift gears a little bit um, and, and learn a little bit more about you. And this next question obviously can sort of relate to both business and you, but I do like to, there's a newer question that I'm asking guests. And that is, if you had a magic lantern and you could be granted one wish, what would it be and why?
0: Wow. That, uh, it's kind of like your Halloween
1: costume question, right? I know.
0: (laughs) I know that I asked earlier. No, it makes me laugh because my, my youngest son, we saw, um, Aladdin a few, you know, whenever it came out and, uh, he, my youngest Oscar is his name. He was so drawn to this idea of a magic lantern. And he asked me this all the time, mommy, you know, if you could have three wishes, what would you wish for? Um, and I think, I think for me, I think it's also because I'm a mom. I, I, really it breaks my heart all the time when I see kiddos who don't have what they need. Um, you know, my my parents coming from the Philippines, we um, came from families who um, you know lived on the streets and uh, lived and and begged for money, um, and you know had had to. We, they didn't have water; they drank coke, you know, because it was the only bottled drink that they could get that wasn't contaminated, um, and just eating very, very, very minimal just to get by, you know, and so that's where I come from. And so when I think about my cousins and my, you know, my every, when I go back there and I see kids who look like my kids, you know, who are on the street, I think a lot about, gosh, man, if I had a magic lantern, I just rubbed it once and I could say this kids all over the world just could have what they need, care, support, food, um, health. um, That's what I would do that's what I would do. Um, and I, it might be romantic and overzealous, but I think as a mom, I I feel so compelled, um, to just make it okay, you know, for kids.
1: No, it's, it's a beautiful and selfless request. And, uh, you know, I think in this day and age with everything that we have going on there, we need more people like you that are willing to use their wishes for things like that. Um, (laughs) tell us something about yourself that maybe people don't know that you'd be willing to share.
0: Something about myself. Um, oh, gosh. So I um, I am a dancer. Um, when I was – my parents, when they were growing up, they did um, – they learned ballroom dancing. And so I danced with my parents all the time. And uh, my dad and I danced all the time. And so from, from my, when I was young, I knew, like – I was like that kid – you know, in fourth grade, who knew, like, the tank, you know, like, I knew every single ballroom dance, and it was just kind of this random, like, that's weird, Eloisa, like, how in the world are you ever going to use that, and then I remember when I went to college, um, I I shifted my major, uh, my junior year, and so I had to catch up um, credits, and, you know, like many college students do, they just find these very quick, you know, kind of, classes that are very easy to take just to kind of fill electives. And so I took like ballroom dancing 101, 102, 103, 104. And so um, eventually, they all came uh, back full circle and got me my helped me get my college degree uh, when I shifted my major. So that's something that um, even now I I love dancing. I love that I have a background in in ballroom dance. And it did help me get a get graduated in four and a half years. <laughs>
1: well, that's a good one. And your, your instructors are probably uh, incredibly surprised that you are such a natural coming in. Right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: Well, I'll tell you one other use that you might get out of it is uh, there is this thing called cotillion, which I never grew up with, but we first discovered it when we were in Austin, Texas, and then headed out here. So with my son there, and then my daughter here, and it is this sort of manners and Ballroom dancing, and I actually got volunteered one night to dance with these 12 and 13 year old girls, which I didn't mind, but I felt bad for them because I know that (laughs) it was this, so I could have used some of those ballroom dancing tips at that point. Uh, (laughs) Next question is I do like to help our guests uh, feed their brain, and so I always like to ask smart people what they're reading or something they've read recently that inspired them. Do you have any recommendations that you'd like to provide?
0: Oh, gosh. You know, it's funny. Someone just asked me this recently. I was on a plane and somebody uh, found out what I was doing. I was running to a keynote and they said, oh, my gosh, you know, what are you reading? You know, because I'm the mom of two sets of twin boys and because I'm running around so much, I think the things that I read the most are actually not, you know, kind of things for, like you said, kind of smart adults. Um, But I actually find that reading a lot of my kids books um, are really, really interesting. So um, there's there's some book i and i I can't remember the title of these of these books, but a series of poems that my my son has about um these amazing books about kids breathing um and breathing to kind of calm their nerves and to, you know, kind of take in the world. Um, And I think it's really interesting because all of a sudden now all of these books are coming out right for these kiddos. And I I remember when I was young, I didn't have this. And so when I read these to the boys and I, I have them think a lot about, um, you know, in this world where everything is crazy and you've got to, you know, you've got to be on the honor roll and you've got to be in chess club. and You've also got to be in tennis and all this other stuff. How are you just slowing down and kind of breathing? Um, So interestingly it was written, you know, for like a 10 year old, but I, I find that when I read that with my boys um, it reminds me even as adult, like, wow, you gotta you kind of slow, slow down. So and I think that that advice for everybody um, is, is very good just to kind of slow down and breathe and, you know, kind of take it for what it is. I love it.
1: And sometimes, you know, the most important messages can come from the simplest places. So no, True. no True. Harm with that. and there's you know, things like the giving tree, Um, you know, still one of my favorite books. I remember them very fondly. So nothing wrong with resorting back to, you know, a book that you read your kids or that your kids are reading.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) So last question, and and we prepped for this. So we made sure that, you know, you could think of something because this is the one that happens to stump, you know, some of the smartest and most successful people in the world. But I always like to ask the proverbial, you know, you're stranded on a deserted island. You can only take one album with you. Which album would you pick and why?
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, one of the things when my dad and mom were here, um, one of the things that, and I think this is kind of a quintessential, maybe stereotypical thing that, um, at least for me, that immigrants did when they moved to to America, is they would kind of engross themselves into American culture. And one of the things that my mom and dad did, because they were both dancers, was listen to a lot of music. And one of the music, I remember that one of the albums that my dad would play all the time um, was The Carpenters. Um, And um, Karen and her brother, I think their brother and sister, Richard Carpenter. And uh, so I, I would always listen to that music. And I remember I can literally visually see it in our basement. My dad would put it on the stereo and, um, he would just dance. And I just remember listening to, you know, that music. And so if I was on a deserted Island, I think that that would just kind of give me peace and almost like that feeling of nostalgia, like when everything was okay, you know, with the world and all you're doing is kind of, you know, watching your dad kind of dance in the basement and listening to music. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, the Carpenters album with them, um, you know, like the like Close to You is one of my favorite songs. We've Only Just Begun, that was one of my always also favorite songs. So that would be something I'd be interested in having with me.
1: Well, I think I've done this probably over 120 times and you're the first one to pick Carpenters. I will tell you, oh, my yeah. <laughs> would be very pleased. My wife is a huge Carpenters fan and you are right. That oh, yeah. They are brother and sister. Um, so oh, okay. I, I that choice. That was a, a good choice, especially the nostalgia piece. It's, yeah. I think it's one that speaks to a lot of people. Um, with yeah. that, I will wrap us up. This has been a true joy. This is Aaron Strout, the CMO of W2O and the host of the What's Know podcast show. And we've just spent the last 30-ish minutes talking to Eloisa Domingo. Uh, she is the global head and executive director of engagement, diversity, and, of, and inclusion at Estella. Sorry, that's a long title. And, um,
0: a long title, yeah.
1: <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash Know.